Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Expert Answers to Common Questions About Met Exxon 14 Skipping Mutations in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, is developed by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's Dr. Mark A. Sosinski. Welcome. I'm Dr. Mark Sosinski, Executive Medical Director at Advent Health Cancer Institute. I'm joined today by Dr. Karen Reckamp from uh, Cedars-Sinai and Dr. Patrick Ford from Johns Hopkins University. Today, we will be discussing and answering questions that were asked by clinicians during a recent educational series on advances with selective MET inhibitors in MEDEXON 14 altered non-small cell lung cancer. Our questions today will focus on three main topics. Number one, identifying MEDEXON 14 skipping mutations. Two, patient and treatment selection. And then three, safety and adverse events. So first, just a very brief review of current guideline recommendations for molecular testing. Obviously, in advanced stage disease, we now have nine or 10 biomarkers in which the FDA has FDA-approved therapies for. So it's important to employ a comprehensive, broad-based platform to make sure that you cover all of these potential targets at the time of initial diagnosis. So since we're focusing on the MedExon 14 skipping mutations, I want to ask Dr. Reckham with our first question. So what's the rate or incidence of these mutations and what's the optimal way to identify them? Thank you, Mark. So MedExon 14 skipping mutations occur in about 2% of patients with non-small cell lung cancer. And there's a multitude of mutations that can occur. And these can sometimes be larger mutations in the membrane domain. And so it's really important to do a broad-based next-generation sequencing method to evaluate for these mutations. Preferably, we're using hybrid capture to identify these, and even more so, RNA-based methods can often identify these alterations more frequently than DNA-based methods. This is not to be confused with MET amplification. And MET amplification can occur in about 20 to 30% of those patients who have tumors with MET exon 14 skipping mutations. So they can co-occur, but they are separate types of alterations. Patrick, anything to add to Karen's comments? I think with all the different modalities we have for testing at the moment, I think having a clear idea of what we're looking for when we send the test is going to be important. And also for our colleagues who are providing the results to us to make it clear to us as practicing physicians what a specific result may mean for that patient. Yeah, so Karen, you mentioned the uh, term both DNA and RNA, NGS uh, platform. Obviously, one should be familiar with what platform you're dealing with. And if it's just a DNA-based platform, how important is the RNA component to kind of cross-check this if you have an initial negative result? There will definitely be some false negatives if you use just a DNA-based platform. And so with a negative result, moving on to an RNA-based platform would be ideal. Many of the platforms do incorporate RNA-based sequencing from the beginning up front. And then the other option is liquid biopsy if there's insufficient tissue. And we know that older patients tend to get met exon 14 skipping mutations. The median age is in the 70s. Um, so sometimes doing an extra biopsy for extra tissue is not feasible. And so liquid biopsy is a option, but you have to know that there's up to 30% false negative rates for liquid biopsy. So Patrick, is this something you commonly do in your practice? I think our focus primarily has been on T 
tumor testing. So at our institution, we do a DNA-based test, which is broad-based, as you mentioned, covering about 500 genes, but focusing on those important ones that have actionable implications. And allied to that, we have a more limited RNA sequencing panel, which covers about 250 of the most well-described fusions, including metaxon 14 skipping mutations. So sometimes we will get a positive result on both. I think the main role at the moment in terms of newly diagnosed patients where I use a liquid biopsy is for those who do not have enough tissue for one or both of those methods. And I think that's not an insignificant number of our patients for the reasons Karen mentioned. So again, the reason we're testing for these sorts of things is we have a number of FDA approvals if you identify them, and none of these FDA-approved drugs, which are highly efficacious, can be utilized by clinicians unless you make the diagnosis with comprehensive molecular testing. I want to ask Karen, in some of the data that we saw with the MET inhibitors, these drugs were evaluated in pretreated patients as well as treatment-naive patients. And we, as we see in most cases, you don't see quite as good of a response rate in the pretreated patients. What are your thoughts about this? Is just related to tolerance or resistance or what are your thoughts? I think that for some of these patients, it may be about the tolerance, again, because we are looking at older adults. Some of the data, it's smaller numbers, and so the response rates also may even out a little bit as numbers get higher and they're, they're treated for longer periods of time. But there is potentially a slight benefit to treating in the frontline setting, and so that just highlights the need to do full next-generation sequencing up front for patients so that we can treat them with the appropriate, most beneficial therapy as the first-line setting. But again, I'm not certain what causes that difference. Generally, when these targeted agents work, they work. But MET also has a number of co-mutations that may cause differences in efficacy. And so I don't think we quite understand some of those differences that we see. Very good. So we we saw, you know, the response rates broken out by several different categories, smokers versus never smokers, and also identifying this particular abnormality either in tissue versus uh, plasma. So I'll turn back to Patrick to say, you know, what are your thoughts about the response rates in these different subgroups? And particularly not necessarily response, but uh, some of the PFS OS data with regard to identifying on tissue versus plasma. I think what I saw there in terms of significance, patients who do have a tissue-confirmed alteration do tend to have a longer PFS and do somewhat better with these agents overall. And I guess there's a few things we could postulate about that. One is perhaps there's some subclonal element in plasma, which we're picking up, which may be subclonal, not necessarily in a single biopsy taken. And perhaps in a tissue biopsy, you're looking more at a clonal mutation, which is driving the tumor to grow across multiple metastatic sites. But I thought that was an interesting finding. And I think more broadly in terms of MET-altered tumors, and they're probably a more heterogeneous group than we see with other driver mutations. For example, with ALK or with ROS1, we rarely see uh, those occurring in smokers, whereas with MET, we can. And uh, there can also be implications for other forms of therapy for MET. For example, patients who have pdl one high MET-altered tumors who are smokers can actually have benefit from immunotherapy as well. So I think it's a complicated group of patients and needs a lot of nuance in terms of how we manage them. Yeah, just to build on that, Karen mentioned the false negative rate with plasma in one of the other, I guess, hypotheses would be the related to the bulk of disease. And if you find it in plasma, of course, we don't understand much about shedding of tumor DNA and these sorts of things. But if you find it in plasma, do you think that bulk of disease may be one of the other variables why you might see a difference? Yeah, I think that's quite possible. So it's one metric. I think those patients who are detectable in plasma 
almost certainly have more advanced disease on average than those patients who are undetectable and perhaps have progressing disease at the time of the sample taken. So that could influence PFS as well. Yeah, true. So Karen, we're going to give you the toughest question here. So how do you choose whether to give capmatinib or topotinib as first-line treatment? That is a tough question. And fortunately for our patients, these are excellent medications that are very efficacious, have CNS penetration, and are tolerable. And so for our patients, they're both very good options. There are subtle differences. They both have the toxicity of peripheral edema, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a bit. But the capmatinib is given twice a day. And so sometimes with compliance, that may be a little more difficult. But sometimes with dose reductions, that may be a little easier. And tapotinib is a once a day medication, so obviously a little easier to remember once a day. But overall, they're both very, very good drugs for patients with met exon 14 mutations. Patrick, do you treat these patients until progression? Do we know much about optimal duration? Yeah, well, so for example, in the vision trial, patients were treated until progression or unacceptable toxicity. But I think what I do tend to utilize with these patients is dose reductions, bearing in mind that these are older patients on average, for example, compared to our other targeted therapy patients, and they often have comorbidities. The toxicity I've seen, which has been most notable, is peripheral edema. It is relatively responsive to dose reductions, and that tends to be my first approach rather than stopping the drug or treatment breaks. But occasionally treatment breaks are needed, you know. And I would not hesitate perhaps at a short treatment break and then trying to restart at a lower dose. What are your thoughts, Mark? No, that, that's similar. I think sometimes a short break can help with some of the toxicities that we see. We still, as Karen, I think alluded to, we still don't have a good sense of why the edema occurs in the optimal management strategy for it. But I do think both, the, as you point out, Patrick, the combination of dose reduction, sometimes if disease is controlled, giving them a little break from treatment can be very helpful in terms of tolerating these sorts of things. So moving on, let's get back to Karen. You know, it's quite rare. We've all probably probably in our practices had a few patients in which you encounter multiple oncogenic drivers on these sorts of situations. So have you seen that? And if you did see it, how would you think about the management of those patients? So I would say de novo, I have not seen multiple driver mutations that include Medexon 14. I have had a patient with an EGFR-mutated tumor uh, develop an Medexon 14 as a resistance mechanism and have successfully given both MET inhibition and uh, osimertinib together, and it's been tolerable. And we have some examples of that for patients who develop MET amplification. But I generally, Medexon 14 skipping mutations as a de novo alteration is a oncogenic driver and very uncommonly presents with other co-mutations that are oncogenic drivers. There are co-mutations that may affect efficacy, and again, the presence of amplification or even protein at the time of diagnosis may have some indication of uh, what the response will be deeper or prolonged, but generally it is an oncogenic driver on its own. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I've not seen it in the Medexon 14 space, but certainly in other spaces, we sometimes see these at the time of initial diagnosis. Karen, you made the point that uh, these are both great drugs for this sort of thing. Any evidence that one may work after the other? 
not to my knowledge and my experience, these are both very similar drugs and the toxicity is very similar. So when we see edema developing from one drug to stop and switch to the other, I haven't seen improvement or differences in that toxicity. Basically all MET inhibitors cause some development of edema and the edema occurs over time, you know, and so the longer you're on it, the, the more prevalent it becomes. And fortunately for some patients, they can be on it even for years, but that edema you're continuing to manage, but I haven't seen any evidence that you can utilize one or the other to overcome resistance at this moment in time, and definitely looking at new generations that uh, may overcome some mechanisms of resistance or potentially combinations as we see a multitude of resistance mechanisms starting to emerge as we utilize these medications. Yeah, I guess the, this is the one thing that stands out about this class of drugs is the edema. And as I mentioned before, the pathophysiology of that in optimal management remains somewhat elusive other than the common sense uh, sorts of things. We also see a little bit of GI toxicity with these sorts of things. But I wanted to get back to Patrick and say, for those patients who you suspect interstitial lung disease while on a med inhibitor, is this a drug-specific side effect or class effect? Would you re-challenge patients if they've resolved or, or what are your thoughts about the uh, ILD issue. Yes, I think this is something, Mark, we've become more used to managing as oncologists over the last few years with immunotherapy and more recently with targeted therapies. So in particular, TKIs, for example, for EGFR. In the MET space, both of these drugs can lead to, to interstitial lung disease. And it can be difficult, as we know, to differentiate this out from the underlying lung cancer, from infection. But once we do that and we discover that we're attributing the changes in the symptoms to the drug, it's recommended that we discontinue the drug if uh, drug-related ILD occurs. And in general, I would not recommend switching to, say, to Potinib if it happened on Capbatinib or vice versa, because it is more of a class effect and something which can recur if the patient is treated, particularly if it's a higher grade event. Yeah, and I would agree with that. And I would also agree or make the point that the same thing would be true for the edema. If you, say, develop edema on capmatinib to the point where you feel like you have to discontinue the drug, I don't think switching to tapotinib would be a good strategy because you would probably end up with the same degree of edema. So we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. This has certainly been a great conversation, an opportunity to answer the questions we got from clinicians about MedEx on 14. I'd like to wrap up by providing a few take-home messages. And those messages would be, we can't emphasize enough the importance of comprehensive genomic testing at the time of diagnosis in advanced stage non-small cell lung cancer. Optimally, this should be by a DNA, RNA-based next-gen sequencing platform, since there are nine or 10 different alterations that we need to know at the time of diagnosis. If you identify a target, we have targeted therapies that are highly effective. We've discussed today two of them in the MedEx on 14 space in terms of its activity, and that would be kind of following the paradigm of getting the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. So with that, I want to thank our audience for listening in and certainly thank you, Dr. Ford and Dr. Recamp, for joining me and for sharing your incredibly valuable insights and expertise. It was great speaking with both of you today. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.